listeners. Drew Kelmo from the Em Over Easy podcast. This is an episode of Med Student Over Easy. We're really excited to bring this to you. I have two amazing guests today, Larissa Petty and Vlad Mordach. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to talk about a really heavy topic, but first, I'm going to let them introduce themselves a little bit, tell us who they are, where they're from, and then we'll get going. Vlad, you want to kick us off? Sure. Yeah. I'm Vlad Mordach. I'm one of the uh, rising third years at the Advent Health East Orlando Emergency Medicine Residency. Ukrainian born, Brooklyn raised, medical school at NICOM. And I'm very excited to be here to get to talk about this pretty intense topic that is definitely important to know about and get an early introduction for. I'm Larissa Patty. I am the clerkship director at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And I too am excited, but, you know, concerned about the topic that we're about to discuss. Yeah. So excited is probably not the right word. Concerned, feeling heavy, but I'm glad we're talking about that. So without dancing around the issue anymore, we're going to talk about the, I bet we're going to talk about the idea of death and dying. This is something that's really germane to emergency medicine. It's germane to medicine in general, particularly inpatient medicine. And as a medical student, is really probably the first time you get exposed to the idea of somebody dying in front of you or somebody who you're taking care of dying. We've dealt with family issues, most likely in our pre-medical life, but when it actually comes to a patient you're taking care of, a patient that you're involved in their care, it hits you a little bit differently and we have to prepare ourselves a little bit differently. It's never easy, at least I don't think it's ever easy to talk about death and dying, but it becomes a little bit more comfortable And I know that's a weird word to say, but I think that's, at least for me, exactly what it is. It becomes a little bit more comfortable. So when you think about the idea of death and dying in medicine, what comes to mind? And and give me just some ideas about how you process through it. It's very complex. You know, dying is part of the natural lifespan of a person. But for a lot of people, and even for myself, I hadn't had a lot of losses in my own family by the time I was a medical student and then an attending. So I felt very not prepared on what to deal with or even how to feel. And it's very different the way different families and different scenarios go down. So I think one of the first things to accept is that the breadth of reactions and experience that you may have personally may not match what is going to happen or what you're going to experience when you're there in a more professional type setting. Yeah, I think that's really true. It's just a very different emotion set that comes through from a personal life death and dying standpoint to a professional death and dying. Vlad, what do you think? Yeah, it's definitely an interesting position to be in, in that you enter at the end of somebody's life and you have to be the one to introduce that news to the family who has known this person their whole lives. And you play such a vital role, like you will probably be somebody to this family or whoever is involved at the end of the life, you will be part of that forever for them. And you can really have a large impact in how that news is delivered, how well you allow them to accept it and kind of gracefully approach the subject. And in that sense, it's definitely good to have an approach in your own mind, even if you haven't had to deal with it on your own in your own life, which is completely separate from how you deal with it in the professional setting. So let's introduce a little bit of a scenario, something that will maybe make this hit home just a little bit more closely to our listeners. So patients, a 92-year-old coming from home with altered mental status, they're 
significantly hypertensive. They have a rightward gaze and difficulty following command. So we have some concept that there's some significant neuro process going on. Head CT shows a large basal ganglia hemorrhage. And after head CT, the patient's becoming more agitated, more confused, not able to follow commands at all, really just decompensating in front of us. We kind of know where things are going to go with this case, right? Based on the patient's age, based on the CT scan, based on their worsening condition in front of us, well, certainly there are things that we can do medicine-wise to maybe temporize the issue. The outcome in this situation is clearly not good, and now family is arriving to the emergency department and asking what's going on. So what are some of the ways that you approach a clinical situation like this where we're really just being introduced to the patient? And that's what happens in emergency medicine as opposed to maybe ward medicine or something along those lines. And now there's family involvement also. We have to immediately gain the trust and develop a relationship with family. Obviously, we're not really developing a relationship with the patient as far as interacting with them because they're not interacting with us. And how do we work towards preparing the family for what is likely to come while at the same time kind of handling ourselves? Yeah, I think kind of exactly what you said is that we do not have the luxury of having some pre-existing relationship with the patient. So a lot of times I'm jumping into the room being like, hey, I'm Dr. Patty. We've never met before, but let me tell you about this really tough day that you're going to have and we're going to do it together. And that's a really tough place to be in. So a few of the things that I try to do as I'm entering that scenario, and this is, it probably sounds a little bit shallow, but I try to actually like look like a doctor. Like I, I want to make sure like if I was just putting a line in, if I was just intubating, I want to make sure I look clean. Like I don't have blood on me. I'm not wearing bloody gloves. I'm not looking like that person because this family is about to endure one kind of trauma and they need to have me be as calm and collected and organized as possible. And then I try to introduce myself and figure out who I'm talking to because there have been a couple of scenarios that I have lived through where I think I'm talking to somebody who has some kind of decision-making capacity and they actually don't. Or the other kind of not ideal scenario for us is that you start to have this conversation and then another sibling or another family member or somebody else shows up and you kind of have to start again. So I like to just introduce everybody, introduce myself in this context and kind of figure out who I'm talking to and then get an idea of what they understand about what happened. Were they at home and they witnessed this thing or did they get a call from police or EMS or somebody else and they don't actually know anything about what's going on? And then get an understanding of what involvement that person has or those people have with the patient in their daily life to see what they know about the patient's healthcare and, and to date. I think that's a really important point to make is, is get a sense of what the family and loved ones know about the situation. It's amazing. Sometimes you walk into the patient or the family, sometimes you walk into the family consult room in the emergency department and the family knows exactly what's going on. In fact, they'll tell you, yeah, this person, they had a cardiac arrest based on their medical conditions. I'm guessing they're probably not going to make it. And you're like, Okay, well, this just got a lot easier. I can have a really meaningful conversation about that. And then other times they have no idea whatsoever because they just got called by police or they got called by EMS and they're walking into a situation or they just don't understand what happened even though they were there on scene prior to the patient coming in. And that's a very, very different conversation. Vlad, anything else you do in preparing yourself and preparing the the family and loved ones for that difficult conversation? Yeah, the biggest point that I just wanted to harp on, but also is something that, 
you know, in my, I'm only a PGY2, Ryzen PGY3. The biggest takeaway I took in training and how to approach the subject was just really gauging that understanding of what they already know and have them tell it to you and then build off of that, say, yeah, so that is what happened. And then I'm going to go on and then fill in the gap. And that helps bridge them to now where you are at that point where they're in the emergency department. You can broach the subject of, you know, what the patient's expected clinical course is. And that way they can kind of be prepared for that and move on to the next step, whatever it is. The other thing is having backup. I like to have the nurse or other people who are taking care of the patient with me because, you know, they'll also have questions, but to have them already be introduced because they'll be helping to talk to them when you get pulled away to take care of another patient is super important that you're not just leaving them alone once you are no longer able to speak to them. Yeah. And I find that chaplain is also a really great resource for that exact thing. Oftentimes we get pulled out of the family discussion room, either because of another patient or the patient we're actively taking care of that we're talking to the family about. There's a change in their condition. And I am fortunate that the the facility I work at, chaplains are almost always available for this. And, and whether the family is religious or not, the chaplains really understand how to have that conversation and they have a great way of connecting with the family. And then, Vlad, like you also said, is I'm not leaving them alone if I have to step out. There's somebody who understands the process. I do want to back up. I glossed over one thing that Larissa said that I think is incredibly important, which is look like a doctor. You know, unfortunately, Larissa, probably that at times is more challenging for you, not that you don't look like a doctor, but the family and patients perceiving you, unfortunately, because of the the stigma of being a female is there anything extra you do? I mean, I have female colleagues who will go so far as to, that's the only time they wear a white coat in the emergency department. So I used to do that. And to your point, I am a mid-30s female. So most of the time I am not the doctor. And I also have the blessing of having a first name as a last name. So it, it just makes things very interesting for those times. So yes, 100%. Thank you. Um there was in the, in the early portion when I started as an attending, I would put my white coat on for this. And then it kind of became, it would be shoved in the bottom of my bag and it would be wrinkled and it looked more ridiculous than just being clean enough. So I try to really make it clear when I'm talking to the family that I am the doctor in charge. If they have, if they seem like they have a, a decent health literacy, I will use the word attending. I make it clear, especially for patients in cardiac arrest, that a lot of times they ask for a cardiologist right away. So I try to make sure that they know that I'm the emergency doctor, like I am the emergency medicine doctor, not the ICU doctor, and that there are more doctors, you know, assuming that this is somebody that we get ROSC for, you're going to get more doctors that are going to come and talk to you. So sometimes, that becomes a longer conversation, a longer introduction than I would normally do. Sure. I don't have that issue being a early 40s, balding, white male with bags under his eyes. Everyone just assumes, even if I'm not wearing a badge or anything hospital related, that I'm the doctor. You know, It's the opposite effect. So I think those are good points that you bring up. Moving on to the family or moving back to the family, there's always the question of whether we get them involved in the room with the patient. You know, initially when I started over a decade ago as a resident in the hospital, I was kind of opposed to this idea. And I don't know why necessarily, but it just didn't feel right to me. As I have matured some in my understanding of medicine and understanding of grieving, I think it's actually a really important thing to offer 
to the family and let that be the family's choice. But it can be a very awkward thing to work in to a patient scenario. Sometimes we're doing resuscitation, compressions, we're doing procedures where the patient just doesn't look like they're in good shape. Other times, it's actually pretty benign as far as what the patient actually looks like, despite the fact that we know they're dying. What are your takes on that difficult part of the the family discussion? So for in my experience, I found that the the families that are going to have a difficult time with the death that you can tell just from your initial encounter with them during an act of resuscitation, I found that the times that I brought the family to the room at the bedside and let them see what we were doing and how much it was taking, you know, compressions, intubations, you have people placing IVs, you may have an IO going, you have somebody ultrasounding, there's a lot going on. And I think it's really important for them to see how much it's taking to see how hard we're trying and to see that what we're doing is not a benign process. And that if we do get them back, just how much it took, and it has a lot of complications that are associated with it. And it all affects how they do, you know, once they're in the ICU and um, their clinical course in general. And so I find that if I feel like I'm going to call the code, or if I feel like that, the code is going to eventually, we're going to have to call it either way. I find that bringing the family to the bedside provides them with a little bit of that closure, which was very surprising for me the first time I heard that this is something that we can do. And now it's something that I routinely do. And that especially applies to the pediatric codes, which is a whole other part of this spectrum of how this can go. So yeah, I like the approach of bringing the family to the bedside. Yeah, this is also a part of my regular practice too. If there's someone available, there's actually decent literature that supports that one, it decreases the rate of PTSD in the family after the cardiac arrest. So I think that's very important of them having, like Vlad said, the closure at the end of somebody's life. And there's also literature that says that it doesn't change resuscitation outcomes. And I think the fear that family is going to get in the way somehow is is not really substantiated in the literature. And I think when I when I am doing this and I typically do it in the reference of we have decided or that the family is considering stopping resuscitative efforts that we are going to have them come in and see what's going on and very frequently the reaction is oh my god no we need to stop which I think is appropriate for a lot of times what's been going on. Some lessons learned that I have is to make sure that there is a chair without wheels in the room for the family member to sit in. And some people don't want to sit and that's fine, but without wheels. And also to make sure that they have an exit path because I have had a couple of family members be completely overwhelmed and just need to get out. So to make sure that we haven't like filled the room behind them, which is always when you have, like Vlad said, 10,000 people in the room. And then if we do ultimately decide to call a code and the family's in the room to have a moment of silence for the deceased patient in front of us to give respect to both the patient and to the family, and then to leave and let the family have a moment with the patient on their own so that they can have some closure and some time. 
I think that moment of silence, whether the family's in the room or not, is so important for us to do as providers. It humanizes what we're doing. And I find it to be that reminder of what actually just occurred. It's actually very easy to completely disconnect yourself from the situation. And in some ways, that's healthy. And that's what we have to do as emergency medicine physicians. We also need to respect life. And we need to respect what just happened to the person that died under our care. And and that brief moment of silence I find to be actually very therapeutic for myself and therapeutic for the staff to help reset. So when we exit the room, we can actually get back to the job we're doing. Sometimes not recognizing what just happened, unfortunately, makes us carry extra weight for the situation at hand where that moment of silence is releasing that weight and allowing the patient to go in peace. The last bit I want to make sure we hit on before we close this out is the words we use because words really matter. When you tell a family that their loved one has passed away, what do you say? I say died. And I feel like you have to say died. And and I try to make sure that I use their name. Like this person, Joe Smith, has died. And if we're in if we're not at that point, if we're really having more of a goals of care discussion, I will frequently use think that this person is entering their dying process because I don't want to allow any wiggle room for us to have more conversations about what exactly that means. I want it to be very clear and concrete what has either happened or what I am anticipating happening. And then I stop talking. I just let that sit for a second, which is very, I mean, I grew up in New Jersey. Silence is not my strong, strong suit at all. I agree. Even before residency, I just always remember this one particular episode of Scrubs where they said, you know, you have to use some form of the word died. It could be death, deadsies, or something like that. But don't say deadsies, obviously. But the patient died. And then I agree, you have to let the family, you have to let them take that in and then see what their reaction is. But you have to let it sit for a moment before you carry on with the conversation. Because, you know, at that point, that's the most clear cut it's going to be. And they're either going to have questions or they're not going to want to hear anything anymore. And so um, using some form of the word death and then letting it sit with them, I think is probably the biggest takeaway, especially if you haven't been in that situation before, particularly for medical students. I do think people feel compelled to say lots of stuff and less might actually be more in this scenario. Yeah, absolutely. Less is more. Vlad, you mentioned a show that we all kind of smirked when we heard Scrubs, but to your credit, it is actually one of the most accurate medical shows on TV, maybe because they do so little medicine, the part they actually do, they get right. I'm not sure, but I I like that. But yeah, deadsies might be the word to avoid. (laughs) death, some type of death. And I really do, Larissa, that was so poignant what you said. They've entered the dying process. I think I'm going to start using that in my conversations, if that's okay with you. I'll give you the trademark credit with my residents though. So uh, credit goes to the proper place. Just to wrap up a couple things, a couple key points. So number one, when we enter these situations, we have to try to develop a relationship with the family and the loved ones as quickly as possible so they trust us and we can pass on the appropriate information with them. We have to look and act like a physician, the physicians that we actually are. So making sure that we're not dirty. If a white coat is the proper thing to wear, wear that and make sure that they know who we are. We're the resident physician, the attending physician, the supervising physician, and make it very clear that we are the physician, the doctor providing care for their their loved one and their family. 
let the family come into the room if that's something that they feel will be beneficial for them. And I go so far as to encourage it because I do think now at this point, having seen enough of this, that it is beneficial for the patient, but I, it is beneficial for the family and the loved ones, but I do respect that that's their decision to make. And last, but certainly not least, words matter. Less is more and just say the word death or dying. That is the proper way to approach it. Vlad and Larissa, thank you so much for joining us on Med Student Over Easy. This is EM Over Easy's attempt to make clinical medicine more approachable for our medical student colleagues. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.